Welcome to New England Lacrosse Journal's Chasing the Gold podcast, your destination for all things lacrosse. I'm your host, Kyle Devitt, and in studio, Jack Piatelli. Jack, straight back from Hawaii in the studio. What a trooper. Thank you so much. Tough drive this morning. Kids are all back in school. I think uh, parents are all wound up, too, from all the candy. I think they ate most of the candy the other night from Halloween. But how are you doing? How's your recovery coming with the knee? I mean, uh, every time I check in with you, you're uh, struggling a little bit. How are you doing today? Uh, it's okay. Doing the pods is better than the one time we did the pods, like the last three we did. I had my knee propped up and it swelled up to the size of like a grapefruit. But now we're we're past that stage. It's starting to look like a knee again and moving forward, doing well. And part of that is our guest, Dartmouth head coach, Sean Kerman. Sean, what's up, man? How are we doing? Kyle, Jack, thank you for having me. Appreciate you guys taking the time to show some interest in, in Dartmouth and the lacrosse program here. I think we're doing great. If you have the bingo card at home, Jack mentioned his drive-in, so make sure to mark that off. And uh, also, <laughs> I mentioned my knee, so mark that one off. Mark that one right. off, too. We're on and, our uh, way to bingo. Yep. Yeah, we're we're getting all the way there. It's two free ones. If you can put it in the middle, you're already on the way to victory. Let's Let's kind of talk about, I mean, everyone wants to know how the Dartmouth thing happened. Like, what was the process like for you? And it seemed to happen very quickly. That that you were appointed there. Can you kind of give some insight on on how that went down for you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, how it seemed is how it went. It was a very quick process, which was great in a lot of ways, but definitely was consumed a lot of my days in that in that week time frame. But it happened. I think I heard from them on the Saturday after Memorial Day, and then from there it was a a quick sprint to the uh, official announcement uh, that Friday, Friday evening. So almost pretty much less than a week time, but it was great. But the Ivy League is a league that for a long time I've been in love with thinking about growing up in the 90s when Princeton had their heyday and then watching my brother compete at Cornell and then coaching at Brown. This was a league that I've always told myself that given an opportunity to be a head coach there, it was one that I always had to look into and that included Dartmouth. And so the thing with Dartmouth comparatively was it's not a place that's had consistent success, right? There's been some success, but more of that kind of one-off flash in a pan type. So that took a lot of digging on my part to kind of understand the why. Why haven't they been as successful as maybe the rest of the league, uh, especially in the what we feel like we're in the Ivy League renaissance right now, right? With after 2022, with six of the seven making the tournament and just kind of seeing the post-COVID surge that the league has had. So I have a lot of questions jam-packed in a week's time. I laugh looking back on it and I tell people when they ask, uh, it felt like every step of the interview process went about twice as long. When you go through an interview, usually it's if it's an hour's worth of questions, 50 of them are them asking you questions, and then they get, give you the tur- courtesy 10 minutes, see what you have in mind, and those 10 minutes quickly turned into another 50 minutes, right? And so just kind of peeling back all the layers, understanding the the infrastructure here, and making sure that this was a place set up for success. And that was the the number one goal through the whole process for me was making sure that there wasn't anything outside of our control as a staff in a locker room to to hold us back from, from being successful. And so every step of the way, my intrigue and excitement grew and grew to a point where it really pushed me over the edge to realize this is a place that, that can not only have success, but consistent success. I worked for Brian and Warrior for 24 years. I remember we used to call on the colleges throughout New England. And one of the first college coaches I, I got to know was Rick Soul, who was at Dartmouth at the time. That was in the 93, 94 season. I think obviously a great young coach, but they've had a number of coaches since then. 
a lot of changes. Why do you think they've had so many changes and why do you think it's been difficult for them to win on a consistent basis? Yeah, I, um, I can't really speak to too much of the athletics infrastructure uh, of the past, but I know sure. that the excitement around Dartmouth today uh, feels different. It definitely feels like the athletic administration and the administration in on the college itself, starting with our pre- our new president, Sion Bylock, there seems to be a lot more alignment than there ever has been between the college and the athletic department. And so the only thing I can kind of guess towards of why there hasn't been success with those coaches in between Rick Soule and that Ivy League championship in 03 to, to now is just there wasn't that alignment from the top down. And so we don't not only feel supported by our administration athletically, but also from the the academic side of campus, with the, starting with the president. So we're really excited about the future here. And again, I don't think it's as early as two years ago, it wouldn't be the same message. And I don't think it'd be a job that, that I would have taken if this were two years ago. I think one of the, the unique things about Dartmouth too, is that it's, it's not in a city, city. It's 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 up north even for me in in New Hampshire. So they're gonna have to kind of get a different kind of kid to go there, regardless of if they play a sport or not. Compared to the other Ivy leagues that are at least close to cities or p- even part of bigger cities, have you found that to be the case? Is is that kind of something you talk about in recruiting? Is is the right fit, the right student athlete to be there and also fit in with your culture? Yeah, it's we're definitely different, but in a lot of ways, being different is a great thing. I think that's what's going to help us make these strides and be competitive is not trying to fit in with the norms of the rest of the league. And so we say it all the time in recruiting. Uh, we understand that we're not for everybody, but that at the same time is is very much okay with us because we know that, that the the young men that choose to come to Dartmouth want to be here. We're, we are unique in that regard. So we feel that there is a connection even immediately through recruiting of people understand where we are. They understand what Dartmouth and Hanover is all about. And that's a place that they want to spend their four years. And and I mean, I've seen it firsthand, even before I got here, having friends and just knowing people that went to school here, the way people talk about this place in their four years here, it's, it's fanatic, man. People just fall in love with this place. And I think that comes to the uniqueness and the the, the tight-knit community that we're able to create because all we have up here is Hanover and and the college, right? And so it's you're able to really bond with those that are, are in it with you as opposed to getting lost in the city or things like that. So we do see it as a strength, but it's definitely unique. We, that's definitely part of, just like academics are a part in weeding through with, with recruiting in the Ivy League in general, uh, we see our location as another opportunity to, to weed through it so that we find the right guys that want to be here and want to make Dartmouth and the lacrosse program great. Kyle and I were talking about on the last podcast about how a lot of different programs are moving from conference to conference. And what's unique about the Ivy League conference is the Ivy League conference is the Ivy League conference. It's not going anywhere, right? And there's no, if you're in the conference, especially on the lacrosse side, you, you can't hide from your opponents. And it, obviously it's a great opportunity for you to come in as the head coach at Dartmouth to come into a, a well-established and very competitive environment and league. No, no question. I I'm a very competitive person. I'm the third of four boys in my family. I've been competing my whole life, right? Even just over the, the, 
the meals on the dinner table, right? Everything seems to talk, turn into a competition. And so this job is in a lot of ways a challenge, but you know, there's some comfort in knowing that if our goals are going to be winning a league championship and then winning a national championship, those go hand in hand in the Ivy league, right? Uh, When you, when you're competitive in this league, you are automatically in the conversation nationally. And so there's, there's some, beauty to that right so our goals can stay the same and the fact that we want league and national championships and this is a this is a league to set you up for success there now you were a great player at tops you won a national championship one of the most impressive accolades of your your career you've won a number of national championships as a coach at tops as a player obviously two national championships at Virginia, you had a great run at Brown with Dylan Malloy. You made it to the Final Four, but you were an academic All-American at Tufts. So to me, that that impressed me more than anything else, that you took your studies very seriously when you were a student at Tufts. And you can't say that about all the great lacrosse players that have played. I mean, obviously, you've got some great students, but you're you're an All-American, and you also were an academic All-American. Yeah, but... By the skin of my teeth, I qualified for that, but nonetheless, it counts. And but yeah, no, it's you go to a place like Tufts University, right? You, you're you're going to take your academics seriously. It's a it's a great academic institution. I absolutely love my four years there, both playing lacrosse and going to school. But yeah, and I think it's really allowed myself, like it's kind of who I relate to. What what made coaching in the Ivy League so much fun when I first started at Brown, and then again here at Dartmouth is I relate to these student athletes because that's essentially who I was as a player, and so I feel a lot of comfort and felt the same comfort in a lot of ways at Virginia, which is also a pretty high academic institution with just a little bit more wiggle room. But in general, always told myself that the day I became a head coach really wanted to be a high academic institution because that's who I feel like I can relate to the best. Now, did you always want to be a coach? Yeah, since like fourth grade is probably the earliest that I can remember scribbling plays in my in my notebooks at school and things like that. But I always wanted to coach high school growing up, kind of where I went to high school, Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. High school across there was the Mecca. It was comparatively to Texas high school football in a lot of ways. And so to me, it was I grew up idolizing the juniors and seniors of my high school team, not not college teams. And so I always wanted to coach, but just never really thought beyond high school. Uh, that to me, in a lot of ways, growing up was the the peak. And then getting to Tufts and getting an opportunity to coach in college right after graduation, that's when I fell in love with this profession in particular. And it completely shifted my whole mindset on what I wanted to do within the realm of coaching. How do you feel with being labeled in the last like decade or so as kind of an offensive savant? Because a <laughs> A lot of people will credit you with the positionless lacrosse and and using all six spots differently and having roles for everyone and and kind of revolutionizing how people look at how you score. Do you, is that something you're proud of, embarrassed by, happy about? How do you feel about that tag? Because I, I I mean I think it's deserved. I mean you you can the proof's in the pudding. Like you can look back and see all the things that you've done. How do you feel about that? I mean, I'm definitely proud. Like, I'd be foolish to not say that that's a really cool way to be talked about by by others. I've always just kind of, the game to me has always been kind of black and white and simple in a lot of ways. And, and, and the creativity that comes with this game is part of the simplicity of it. It's something I've always fallen in love with. But for me, it's it was never really like 
too much outside the box thinking, at least in my mind. So I, I am sometimes taken aback by it because what I think we do is, is generally pretty simple. It's just maybe it's just a different way to look at things that are simple. But in the same way, we've I've been so fortunate to be around some great players that have created some great success on the lacrosse field. And but yeah, so I mean, I, I'm incredibly proud of that. But at the same time, it's it always kind of I'm always kind of taken aback by. It. I mean, you saw when you said it, I kind of cracked a smile, right? It's, <laughs> you, you flinched uh, actually. Yeah, you flinched yeah, a little. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's it definitely still is taking some getting used to. Yeah, I think one of the things that that separated you was this concept, and Jack and I talk about this all the time. We hate this joysticking, right? Like joystick being a joystick coach is like, come on, man, like don't do that. You be ha, trusting your players and instilling with them in them a creative ability and nurturing that I think is super important. And it's one of the things like you, your success story of that with the way that you have coached and, and the success you've achieved. So I think, I think it's great. I think it's, I can't wait to go offline now that you're here in New Hampshire and just be like, Hey, what do you think about this all the time? Yeah. So get ready for that. I love Only it. answer half. It's yeah. Fine. And I, I mean, a ton of credit goes to Coach Daly, who's now a Brown, but who was my college coach. He completely just changed my whole thinking on, and I just fell in love with being a player with a coach that just let you play to your strengths and be creative and really tried to not put you in a box. And I came from a very successful, but pretty regimented high school program. And I think I was able to earn some freedom just through kind of who I was and my lacrosse IQ growing up. And so, but it was, at times it was a struggle to try to play outside the lines on the paper and then to get to Tufts where it's like, no, you, we don't want you to be a line on the page. It's probably the worst thing you could do in this program. It really allowed my creativity to, to take off as a player and then to kind of put my, to get my hands on it as a coach kind of blended the two together, right? The structure and the the regimented system of my high school experience thrown in with the creativity and letting players be players and play to their strength. I think that's where it's like the perfect balance and something that I've loved every step of the way as a coach. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. When did you start thinking outside the box as an offensive mind, whether it's as a player or as a coach, but it really started to come to fruition at Brown, no, at uh, Tufts when you were playing there for Coach Daly? Yeah, it's uh, it definitely started as a player. And then the minute I got to be a coach in that program, just the idea of putting my own stamp on something that gave me so much and, and just try to continue to uh, let it evolve. And I had some ideas that I thought could make it better uh, in some ways. And, and we were fortunate enough to have the the pieces in place to allow that to happen. And so I had a ton of fun those two years at Tufts, just taking something that I've wholeheartedly believed in and just adding a little bit of my flavor and twist to it. Yeah. One of my thoughts on your offense is the first thing that comes to mind is everybody is an offensive threat when they're on the offensive end of the field. And I don't think everybody had that mentality. If you played defense, you got to the midfield line, you crossed the line, you had to give it up. Or if you're a face-off guy or a D-midi, but you changed all that. And I think it's really opened eyes for so many different people, and it's really made the game a, a, a better game, a faster game, more exciting game to watch. Yeah, and again, I, I continue to give credit to to Coach Daly and, and Brett Holm, who's now his assistant at Brown, was an assistant at Tufts my four years, and they were really the the pioneers of it. To I mean, they were moving all state attackmen to long stick midi and D midi during my time there, and and guys like Alec Bylowski, who was a 
40-point pole long-stick midi in Division Three was something that really wasn't heard of. And if it was, it was like one-offs. And, and that became a staple of Tufts. And so for me to play in that and then to, again, just take it, I was just lucky enough to get that opportunity to bring it to Brown and and put it on a national stage. But a lot of that philosophy is was learned from Coach Daly and Coach Holm in, the, in that Tufts lacrosse program. Last question for me, not for the podcast, but follow-up question. We talk about having fun, right? I think a lot of college players go to different programs, and sometimes the the, the commitment you have to make academically, athletically, socially might not be as fun as going into the program you think you're going to have, but I think it's very important. Like you said, you had so much fun playing, and it looks like all the teams you've coached at – Brown and Virginia are having a lot of fun. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've had so much success is the players on the field are having fun. Yeah, it's uh, ingrained in me that as a coach, it's my job to make sure that lacrosse is the best two hours of, of our guys day every day. And if it's not, then it's up to myself and my staff to to make the adjustments to make sure that we're having fun, because this is like it's why I love this sport. I played high school football too, and there's nothing better than a high school football game, Friday night lights. Football practice is the worst. The it worst. The awful. worst. It is awful, right? And it's just mundane and just repetitive. And whereas lacrosse, like every minute of playing that game, I loved from practice. It didn't matter if it was the most grueling practice. By the end of it, you still had a lot of fun. It's that's just the beauty of this sport. And so Again, it's something that I've tried to do everywhere I've been is making sure that, that remains a, a focal point of my coaching philosophy is that these guys are having fun every step of the way. It can be demanding and it can be tough, but at the end of the day, you're still having fun doing it. Right, and you're playing a game. Yeah, no doubt. One of the recent trends, whether it's brought on by the COVID extra year or otherwise transfers, is D3 players kind of making the leap to Division One now a lot of the time. As a former D3 player, we're all D3 guys. How do you how do you feel about that? And what do you think makes a successful transition for that player? Yeah, I mean, for, I couldn't be a bigger fan. Like, I love it. And I love seeing Division Three guys go in and make tremendous impacts. It, it happens all over. It's not just certain programs. And um, it's, it's just such a proud, like, like everybody that played division three, you watch somebody play on that big stage and you, you feel that kind of connection, right? Like, even though like they could have played down South and I went to school in Boston, it doesn't matter. Right. There's that, that D three connection that you have and knowing that there's some really good lacrosse being played at that level. And it's just not always believed until they're there showing it on the national stage. And so I think that the, what, allows uh, people to translate so well is it's rarely physical attributes right it's a lot of lacrosse iq and skill development uh, that ends up allowing these guys to to really translate well there's physical attributes that definitely help but you're seeing these guys come in and just play at a high level and, and process things at a, at a fast rate and i think you're going to see a wave of Guys from my alma mater this year uh, make some serious noise. Those guys were absolute ball players the last couple of years at, at Tufts, and to see them at the highest of high levels, and you're going to see them all make impacts because they are just they know how to play the game. They can make decisions in real time very quickly, and they're not afraid to go out and make mistakes. And I think that's going to be a huge piece to this thing as they get adjusted to 
the division one level is they're going to have some some failure and make some mistakes but they're so used to it that they're just going to just going to roll off their their back and and they're going to adjust and make the changes they need and continue to have at it until they have success I think, always sorry go ahead jack no I, I think to become a, a a good player at the college level no matter what level is you gotta you gotta get on the field and you have to have the experience with these division three players who are coming moving on to a division one program they're coming in with a lot of playing experience, whether it's a freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, they might start their sophomore. They'll, they'll get three or four solid years of playing competitive lacrosse. It allows them to step into a top division one program and have the skill set, the mentality, the toughness, the athleticism to be able to compete, not only compete, but be um, a great contributor to the program. No question. No question. That, there's no substitute for that game experience, right? You, you could practice all you want, but actually playing in a game where you're either winning or losing, and especially as you get into those playoff runs, there's some poise that's developed through that experience that is so ne- necessary to be a successful cross player. And the confidence they bring, too. I mean, you get a guy from Tufts playing for a national championship every year, know what it takes to get to that level in the tournament and they bring that along with them it, it does wonders for the player in the program he's going to no question no question i think my hottest take is that the best teams in d3 roll the worst teams in d1 by like 20 to 2 yeah i think if you gave those teams opportunities to prep yeah i can see that definitely and again i'm i'm biased for sure but the teams that i got to play on and more importantly the teams that i got to coach at tufts uh, those I'd put those guys up against anybody. Guys like John Upgren, in a lot of ways, didn't belong in Division Three when it was all said and done. Like that was he was as good of a player as I've ever coached. And again, we had a roster full of them that 2014 year at Tufts, and so I would have taken that team up against a lot of Division One teams that year. I don't like to play what ifs, but I always promised myself I would ask you this question because I was there covering it on the ground. If Dylan Malloy doesn't get hurt. Yeah, it's no brainer. I, you I, guys I win, answer, right? But yeah, I can answer your question right now. Yeah, there's no yeah. doubt. Yeah, yeah, we, people, but, but only people that saw it know. Yeah, right. Like people that were there, boots on the ground in the stadium, and people forget this. This was back before Brown like renovated anything at that on the oh, cross yeah. field. So I'm in the box, and it feels like I think this might collapse. Like oh, yeah. I was worried. I was sitting there, I'm typing away. I'm like, guys, if this is my last tweet, like, I love you all. Like, it was so loud, so crazy, and it was amazing. It was one of my favorite memories of that team was actually the game that Dylan got hurt. But we were playing Hopkins in the first round. And we, it was like 0-0 for the longest time, comparatively, for that team. I think it was 0-0 for like the first 10 minutes of that game. And you just felt this like pressure cooker environment in the crowd of just like there'd be transition and just like they were just like waiting for something. And then that once that kind of the lid blew off, that place erupted. I mean, that was wall to wall packed and and for, will forever be one of my favorite memories of, of being there. Dylan Malloy was one of my all time favorite players to watch. He He was just magic out there the way he competed you know how skilled he was and how he saw the field i was at that game and when he when he got hurt i was really disappointed that i wouldn't be able to watch him play at 100 percent. and no question about it that team was so much fun to watch play and and losing him for sure you would have done some great things him in the lineup and probably would have won a national championship he, he scored on one leg 
Oh yeah, like, like he still played. Yeah. <laughs> that was the crazy thing. Like just for a little bit, it was amazing. Yeah. I, 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 in Final Four, I remember telling him, I was like, he was out there, but he was kind of hurting us more than he was helping us. He had scored one goal at that point, and it was right before his second goal. I was like, Dill, I think I got to take you out. Like, you're not really helping us. And he's like, all right, give me one more possession. And then he just absolutely racks Matt Dunn in one of the most iconic goals he scored. It's like, all right, I guess you're staying in for the rest of the game. So he was just an ultimate competitor. Let's kind of circle back to to Dartmouth, obviously. We, we did a lot of memory recall there but going to Dartmouth last season you could argue it was a successful for the lat compared to the last five right like six six and six 500 record but it seems like the administration really did just want to push forward and you have been an assistant for a while with Virginia and with Brown and I think every summer I swear I heard like Oh, Kerwin in a re- interview for this, or someone wants Kerwin to be the coach here. And I just think it's, it's great that you chose Dartmouth personally for me, because you're closer and now I can kind of pick your brain. I can go see games and, right. and all of that, but also the selection of that and the way that you've described it. We we had an interview before this podcast where you kind of went into why you did it. And you talked about it briefly at the beginning of the podcast. Why didn't you take those other opportunities because i'm pretty sure they were presented to you you don't have to name the schools or anything but right why why now i guess yeah so part of it was i was in the running for jobs then i didn't get them uh, that was definitely mm-hmm. part of it i did have an opportunity to be a head coach in the summer of 2018 and i turned that one down and if you think about it like that was before we won anything at virginia and i Went to bed that night thinking I was going to take the job, woke up the next morning and just felt in my gut that I wasn't ready. Uh, And there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, It's been completely ingrained in me uh, to always try to leave somewhere better than I found it before I moved on. And I've done that. I'm very proud to say I've done that every step of the way in my career as a player and then a coach. And I didn't feel that at Virginia that we were we were done yet, and I was you know ready to move on. And so I decided to turn that one down, thinking that hey maybe next year something would pop. And there were some opportunities, but then from then on that I hadn't gotten an offer. But it wasn't anything that to me I still needed to be prepared for this. Again, as I've teased with you all, like I'm incredibly competitive. Uh, I wasn't going to take a job that I wasn't prepared to to be successful in, and so. That had something to do with it as well, is that from that, the day that I said no to that job to now, every step of the way has been a a process of preparation to a point where I feel as prepared as I possibly could be without being a head coach before to to take over and run a program. There's still things every day that pop up that I'm not prepared for, but there's a lot that I've thought out and flushed out so that we've really been able to hit the ground running here. And so it's been, I'm very happy with how it's gone because I, I couldn't feel more prepared taking it over today. So you take the position at Dartmouth. Now you got to hire your assistant coaches. So you're thinking, obviously you have so many different contacts. You've coached with so many different coaches out there. What's your mindset? What, do, what are you looking for on the offensive side and defensive side? And talk a little bit about why you hired the guys you hired. Yeah. My first call was easy. That was to, to Mikey Herring who played for me. At, at Virginia, and then immediately upon graduation became an offensive coordinator at a Division One school at VMI, which 
I don't think is is I don't think people realize how rare that is for a 23 year old to be an offensive coordinator, not just an assistant coach, an offensive coordinator, at a division one school. There's not that many D1 schools out there. And so he's been running an offense for the last five years. And not only that, but running an offense that is completely aligned with my entire philosophy. And so he was easily my first call. There is nobody on the planet that I trust more with the offense than, than him. They just don't exist uh, because he and I have developed between his playing days to now his coaching uh, career, developed such great chemistry and rapport that now knowing what I know and how many directions a head coach can be pulled, uh, like, thank goodness he joined me because now I can leave that offensive huddle and have all the confidence in the world that things are going to be run the way that he and I both want it to run, which is exactly the same. And then the D side of the ball, that one took a little bit more time. I had a lot of calls with a lot of great coaches, and I'll be honest with you both, a couple of guys said no through through the process, and which was fine. Again, kind of going to our conversation about recruiting. Like I wanted to find people that wanted to be here in Hanover and in the Upper Valley and ended up getting introduced to, to Matt Witcher. Matt and I have a, a lot of mutual connections, but had never crossed paths before really other than maybe a, like a, a quick hello or things like that. And so as soon as I got to know him and, and listening to how people talk about him, it quickly became a no-brainer hire. Matt is an incredible teacher. He's got an incredible work ethic. He's obviously playing at the highest level at a, in a position that's borderline impossible in my brain. Playing short stick D mid these days is is a chore in itself, and he's one of the best to do it. And so for him to have that playing experience to to share with our guys and specifically our D mids here is incredible, incredibly valuable. And so just getting to know him through that process, it quickly became obvious to me that he was kind of the next guy up to make that jump from D3 to D1, which again, near and dear to my heart, very similar to to me, someone that played at a at a place that gave him a ton, poured everything back into it before he left, and then now waited for the right opportunity to leave. And so I'm just every day I'm blown away by the both of them and how great of teachers they are and how they can command the room and and, and help our guys achieve their goals. And then we added Kyle Helfrich, our third assistant, who I'm going to plug him on this pod. We're the only t- uh, school in the Ivy League that's got a face-off guy as an assistant coach, like someone that actually took draws in college. So we think that's a huge advantage for the faceoff X for us. And Kyle does a great job with our goalies as well. And I've coached his brother, Connor at Tufts, and then Kyle followed Connor's footsteps and, and played at Tufts, was an All-American. So I've known the Helfrich family for a while. And so the three of them are, are great. They're young, they're hungry, they work incredibly hard. They're great with the guys. And so I, I feel very fortunate to have what I think is a rock star group in the office right across the hall. I definitely, we have a mutual friend that was like, Hey, are you just going to hire New Hampshire guys to be your assistants before you hired them? And I was like, he's like, yeah, I kind of dropped your name. I was like, Oh, I'd be a volunteer. I'd be sick. <laughs> That'd be amazing. I would, oh, I would but... love it. I think it'd be great. Jack has something to say. No, no, no. Go ahead, Jack. You're going to say, I don't know. No, no. Cause <laughs> I have this thing where I talk to people about it. And well, you want, just like, you want, it's not about playing. No, no, no it's no, not no, about no, playing. I know. I know it's not about playing, but you want players to come to the school. Hey, Jared, I'm high yeah, energy. They might have some questions about it. Listen, I've made a full turnaround. People actually like me now. This podcast has really done wonders. Yeah, I don't I'm know if there's you. anyone that can sell New Hampshire better than you. So I think yeah, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> see? You got to get them, coach. <laughs> yeah. You, you, we'll see. There's time. There's a lot of time. I got I got business to take care of, but you got to heal that knee. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that too. Let's let's kind of look at this season coming up. 
you had a, you know, not to say the cupboard was bare when you got there, but the, a lot of graduate kids left, a lot of fifth years, had a couple transfers, and you're kind of this new coach, this hyped-up coach, and you're going into this season with – I know there's a lot of underclassmen on that team. They're not your recruits. I know a lot of people say that. They hate that, but I'll bring it up because it's true. What is your first message to them, and how do you kind of build from that transition – from the previous staff to yours, what's what's your first meeting like with this whole new group of the the message in my first meeting with the guys was a very simple message in that they were going to be uncomfortable at times and that was okay and and really the only thing that we asked of them is that they show that they show that they care right that they care about their teammates they care about this program they care about the school this community but not just saying that they do we needed to see it right and again so. For us, what that looks like on the cross field is like showing that you care is just every day showing up and focusing on base fundamentals, the boring parts of our boring parts of our game, right? I use air quotes there, right? But, you know, that to me, if you can have enthusiasm through the fundamentals, it's like the ultimate mark of you caring about the program, caring about your craft. And so, but that's been a bare minimum standard for us is just we want to, we want a group of guys that care, knowing that, hey, this was going to be different. Right. And again, they they did not choose me when they chose Dartmouth and to play lacrosse here. I was not a part of that equation and just letting them know that I understood that. But then also letting them know that we were going to hold them to a championship level standard from day one. Our goals, our goals are going to be to compete for an Ivy League title, a national title from minute one. Whether we accomplish that this year or not is remains to be seen, but it doesn't mean that we should shrink our standard and, and change our goals and have something a little bit more attainable because uh, we need to make sure we have that effort every day. And so, again, it's that was our first message to them. Another thing that I've constantly said is it's okay for for things to get worse before they get better, right? If you think about it, I got a group of 42 freshmen on this team, right? Everybody's new. And so when you think of that, that you don't have that peer-to-peer teaching that you get from a team that you've had for a couple of years, right? I don't have any seniors that can teach the freshmen of the basics of what we're doing because they're trying to learn it at the same time as that these freshmen are. So they can help and support and, and comfort their teammates. But at the end of the day, like, you know, it's really everyone's on an even playing field. And so we need to be prepared for some some failure and for things to maybe look a little ugly at times, knowing that if we stick with the process that we have laid out in front of these guys, that we're going to see growth. And that's exactly how our fall went. There were moments and times where things did not look great and things seemed to be getting worse. But just sticking with it and trusting the the process that we have in place, we really these last couple of weeks have seen some tremendous growth and seen that breakthrough with these guys. And what was really cool for us as a staff was seeing the guys recognize that and seeing their excitement and their pride. And wow, like I am improving. Like this is all of a sudden things are getting a little bit easier. We're playing a little bit faster. We're way cleaner with our fundamentals. And then seeing that applied to the field has been a, a really fun to watch them come to these conclusions as well. One of my frustrations being in the game and watching some young coaches, a coach at the youth level, even high school level, is they lose touch with how important the fundamentals are catching, throwing, shooting, dodging. But in a lot of those cases, they don't know how to teach that. You know how to teach that, but you understand how important it is, even at that level, 
to consistently get better, work on your skill set. Because I feel, and I know, and I know you know this, but the more skill set you have, the better you are at your skills. The game slows down, becomes more fun. You're able to do more. And being in a competitive environment that you're in at the, the Ivy League level, you got to get better every day. No question. And if we're trying to play as fast as we possibly can while giving ourselves the best opportunity to win lacrosse games, part of that is the faster you play, the more important the simple things are, right? Like you, that is put under a microscope right away, right? And it's just you're exposed that much quicker if you're trying to play fast and you don't have that that base level of fundamentals. Uh, it can get really ugly really quickly. And so that's been that's been the the message since minute one. If we're gonna try to play, raise the tempo here, we gotta be clean with with everything we do on the, in the simplest form. I ask this at every opportunity of of coaches that I that I admire and and understand like their skill and perspective on the game. Give me your best drill. My best drill. Oh, uh, that's a great question. What's one of my favorites? I mean, so you guys have watched our offenses play. We spend a ton of time hammering the timing and the technique of inside finishing. That's mm-hmm. something I take a ton of pride in. It's who I was as a player. So one of some of my favorite drills are simple, just strong hand cutting inside finishing and understanding the different types of fakes, the most efficient ways to finish. So that's I, I take a ton of pride in that part of the game. I think it's a little bit of a lost art. You don't see it that crease presence, constant crease presence a ton anymore. And it's starting to come back for sure, but it's, it's always always and forever will be a part of our offenses here. And so we do a drill where it's it's working the timing and spacing of our, our very classic two cuts inside uh, in the big littles that I've run everywhere that we've, we've been. And it's a two ball drill, right, where you have two Dodgers. So both guys are getting their shot. So it's not like you got to pick and choose who you're feeding to. And it's, it allows you to really time up the chemistry that you need on the inside. If you have two guys in the crease, they need to be on the same page and, and have great timing. And so we do a ton of that rep work so that both guys are getting shots while still maintaining their, their chemistry and their spacing. So that's probably my favorite and most often drill will do. And I've brought it pretty much everywhere I've been. Best crease guy you've ever seen. Go. Oh, Chris Schoenhut at Tufts had tremendous hands. He was an 80 goal scorer in that 2014 year. Kyler Balestri is another one that that comes to mind. Kyler had a competitive streak to him. I always laugh. He always kept Dylan in check. He was the only one that could give Dylan a hard time. And so, but he was tremendous, tremendous lacrosse IQ. And then most recently, Xander Dixon really exploded in that in the inside game. He and Peyton Cormier, th- those two are probably the best tandem that I've had on the inside. The chemistry that those two had, it got to a point where I didn't need to even coach them and tell them where to be. They just knew how to get each other open. And it was a mark of a really great relationship or how selfless they were to get each other open. That This past year in particular was a ton of fun watching those two operate on the inside. Coach, you have some guys, some players who, who get it, know how to get open, know how to finish, and you have some guys that don't get it. How do you teach those guys that don't get it, that come in, to get it, understand when to cut, when to shoot, how to shoot, where to shoot, just repetition after after repetition? Yeah, you got to build habits, right? If you don't get it, right, you can force yourself to get it to some extent, right? And then so it's we try to make it muscle memory in a lot of ways. I think the biggest mark of that is, especially recently, you watch some 
some PLL games of some Virginia guys that you all would think were perimeter players for us. And then to see them go in a PLL game and score a couple crease goals, like Doc Aiken operating on the inside for the Atlas a couple years ago, it's because he, we drilled it with him too. Like everybody was a crease guy for us at some point, right? We, they all needed to understand how to cut inside because that helped them be better feeders too. And so you saw that translate as they moved on, even though we didn't use them in those roles a ton. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you said Cormier and Balestri, when they, they pop into my head, I'm like, oh, mid-range. Because they're so good at mid-range, even though I know that they play inside, but they're, they're especially Cormier's ability to get underneath and then rip from like 12. Yeah. I, I don't know that many other players playing right now that can do with that with the efficiency and power that he right. has. Yeah. So I, I was thought, I thought that was interesting. I thought you're definitely going to say like BJ Prager, Matt Poske, because those are those would be my answers. But no, I mean if you're going to ask me if like growing up who I idolized as a crease tackle was Zach Greer. That was like right in his heyday. He was so much fun to watch. Like I wore my helmet and did my eye black like him. Like that was my guy. Even though he he and uh, Duke and Cornell had some big rivalries then when my brother was playing, I still always ended up watching him and, and enjoying uh, what he was doing out there. How much film do you watch as a coach outside of having your players watch film? How important um, is that? Oh, it's it's incredibly important. It's it's film is the ultimate beacon of truth, right? It it just it does. It's cliche to say, but it truly doesn't lie. And I love watching it. It's Everybody says it, right? It's never as bad as you think. It's never as good as you think. If you leave practicing, thought you had a great day, watch the film. It will humble you very quick. If you think you had an awful day, watch the film. You'll end up being way more excited. So it's like the ultimate, like just keeps you level, gives you the facts. It's just such an important piece to coaching, to understand your players, to understand their strengths, to understand what worked and what didn't, and to, to hopefully grow and change and adapt. I think that one of those things for me that I've always prided myself on was making adjustments in game, right? And and allowing my continuing to evolve and tweak in game to continue to try to set our team up for success. And a lot of that came from preparation through film, right? And understanding in a lot of ways the different answers you could have based on what teams are doing. And so that's film of ourselves, that's film of opponents that's films of just random games of teams that run similar styles and schemes to just see what they're doing how they're teaching things and it's in a lot of ways this is a a thieves business and the fact that we're all stealing from somebody right and so it's something that you constantly need to do if you just think that you have all the answers and can just do it yourself that's the like the first mistake you can make to to heading in the wrong direction and so constantly trying to learn whether it's in-house learning or, or or taking from others now, when you were at Tops as a player, did they film the practices back then as well? No, very rarely, I would say. Right. Yeah, we started to more and more as my years went on. I think it was just more of the like technology and manpower and all of that. But yeah, we started to more and more. But we did a ton of, of game film, learning from previous games, ton of scouting film. And I found myself in Coach Dale and Coach Holm will tell you, I was, I lived in their offices. I think, I think they were shocked that I was still able to become a scholar All-American with how much time I spent in their offices. So it's, I just, I kind of lived there. And so it's always been my, one of my favorite parts of the game, watching and learning. 
it's funny. I obviously have watched a lot of lacrosse, watch a lot on TV. But when I was in college, we didn't have film. I was lucky if we had a. I can't tell you if I have a game that I can watch of my own. And and I wish back then we. I mean, football had film in the '80s and early '90s. But it's amazing how far the technology has come. But the fact that the teams are actually videotaping practices is really how far it's come. It's it's really unreal. Yeah, it is. It's so accessible. There really isn't an excuse anymore. To, to not learn and continue to learn through through film. While we're on film, how important is a player's video highlight to you in the recruiting process? The highlight video in particular is a great, I call it like a great introduction and a great conclusion. Sure. Right? Everything else needs to be either live or full game tape, right? And so, but it's a great way to get on people's radar. And then it's also nice to just kind of remind you as, as you go along of like, hey, let me just throw it back on just to kind of refresh, see, you know, what the skill set is, things like that. So it's always kind of like the beginning and the end, but everything else in between, you got to really pour the man hours in to evaluate. How many videos are you getting a day? Oh, Nowadays, with November recruiting, there's a lot of a lot of emails, a lot of a lot of updates on where people will be, and fields are changing, schedules are changing. So the the need to update us that the game's at nine thirty, not eight thirty, is ever present and definitely not the most necessary, but it's uh, part of the part of the reality of it. Yeah, the back end of coaching with parents and players I don't understand is the point. If you're going to watch a kid play at a tournament, next thing you know, the tournament schedule's changed. So now your schedule has to change. It changes everything else. And you're getting 100, 200 emails every day. And everyone, why hasn't he gotten back to me? Why hasn't he gotten back to me? Well, he just got 100 emails today. He got 100 the day before. So if he looks at your video and he likes it, he'll contact you. But they're busy. Yeah, it's it's a tricky balance, right? You try to be as attentive and and, and respond to to everything, but at the same time, it's it's overwhelming at times. And I think we are very, a lot more resourceful than than people give us credit for. And the fact that like we know when things change and we can navigate schedule and tourney machine and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. but it's I appreciate people thinking that they need to to keep us updated, even with those minor details. With all the commitments, it's an email. Every 10 minutes, like, hey, this guy just committed to you. Are you going to do a piece on him? I'm like, yeah, eventually. There's like, <laughs> there's like 94, 100 kids in New England that have committed to D1 now. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'll get to all 94. But, yeah, it's it's definitely – that part of lacrosse has become kind of – well, it's, it's made me able to have a job like this. But it's also kind of expanded the coverage of the game – and like we're regional here and the show's national to, to kind of bring people in. But I do think that there's a, a big market for prep and commitments and all that like coming through. That's going to be the future of the game is, is going to, that's one of the indicators that lacrosse is growing the most is that we're getting to a place where people are rivals.com. People are, are looking up stuff like that. Like they are with other sports. And I, th- I think it's great. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the sport is growing so fast that it's almost there's a need for it now, right? There isn't enough coverage in a lot of ways, you could say. And so you're right. I think it's just it's it's tremendous for to think about the future of the sport. Well, the problem with the the growth of the sport, you just don't have enough people like officials that are qualified to officiate and qualified to write like our, our good friend Kyle does. I mean, there aren't many guys like Kyle in this business. There's only one Kyle. Devin. 
right? There's only one. Yeah, one of one. Yep. Well, there's a couple people coming up. So we'll see. <laughs> I'm not I'm not comfortable taking that title. But coach, we want to thank you again for for joining us, giving your giving us your time. And I really look forward to my nice woody drive up 89 eventually sure. when the time comes. So appreciate you coming up. Absolutely. Anytime. Come on up to Hanover. We'd love to have you guys. Cornell at Dartmouth this year, coach. I'll be up there for that game for sure. Good luck at Dartmouth. Very nice talking to you. Yep. Thank you guys so much. Ooh, ooh, can we call that? Can you can you make a call? Yeah. Can we like be be on the com for that? Jack, tell me you don't want to do that. That'd be fun. Let's do it. We talk about it all the time, but I feel like we can actually make this happen because like we got we got the head coach here. Yeah, let me see. I'll ask I'll ask my people, see what we can do here. Sounds great. great. Thanks again for listening to New England Cross Journals, Chasing the Gold Podcast. For Jack Piatelli, I'm Kyle Devitt. See you next time.